Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where you ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, we'll be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight Till by turning, turning we come round round Is the gift to be simple Tis the gift to be free Tis the gift to come down Where you ought to be and when we find ourselves in the place just right, we'll be in the valley of love and delight. morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Roxanne Borneman, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and also online. Since 1870, the UU of Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal education and religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of your age, your sexual orientation, your ethnicity, or your economic situation. Wherever you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and also online, so be sure to subscribe to our church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for any updates. We have one announcement this morning that I'd like to share with you. On Saturday, June 4th, our church will be hosting a Leave a Blessing, Take a Blessing booth at the River District's Pride Fest on the 400 block. Members of the community will be invited to leave a message of love and support. In return, they get a rainbow blessing, face paint, from our congregation volunteers. And we need volunteers to staff the booth. Specifically, we need people for face painting to greet families and answer questions about our congregation and also for setup and takedown of the booth. Shifts are for one hour each, but you can sign up for more. And we'll have folks there to help direct and provide support. Plus snacks, a t-shirt, and shade will be provided. To sign up or to get more information, see the upcoming Wednesday email 
or chat with Ann Jefferson after the service. Good timing, Ann. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please join me in singing hymn number 214 in your hymnal. Rise as you're able. If you would, please stay standing for our affirmation. You'll also find the words in your order of worship. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Our doxology. story called Joy, written by Corrine Avarice and illustrated by Isabel Folleth. It was published by Quattro Publishing Place. At several points during our story, the characters are going to go whoosh. And when I, give, when I cue you, I invite you to join me with your most joyful whoosh. Let's try it out now. Oh, that was so joyful. Let's begin. Fern loved Nana. She loved her butterfly cakes her mantelpiece mice, and her cat, Snowball. But most of all, she loved her smile. But recently, Nana had stopped baking cakes. The mice were dusty, and Snowball was more of a ball of fuzz. Worst of all, Nana hardly ever smiled. What's wrong with Nana? Fern asked her mother. I don't know, Mom replied. It's like the joy has gone out of her life. 
What's joy? asked Fern. Joy makes your heart happy and your eyes twinkle. Like when we all dance for dinner, or when I get the giggles with Ernie, or when I go whoosh down a slide. Yes, a great big said Mom. Nana deserves some, through thought Fern. And if the joy had gone out of Nana's life, she would bring it back. But where would Fern find it? And how could she carry it to Nana? She searched the house for a catching kit, a can, a paper bag, a saucepan, a box with no lid, a lid with no box, a fishing net, and a pointy stick. Into Fern's catching bag it all went. That afternoon, Fern and her mother set off for the park. There would be plenty of joy there, and no one would mind if she borrowed some. A puppy bounded towards Fern, its floppy ears up and down. Bounce, 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 Fern giggled. She felt of joy, and she tried to catch the bounce, but the bounce wouldn't go into the box. On the swing, a baby chuckled each time her daddy tickled her feet. Tickle, tickle, chuckle, chuckle. Fern chuckled, too. She felt the of joy. She tried to catch the chuckles. Then she tried to catch the tickles, but neither the chuckles nor the tickles would go in the can. When Fern reached the duck pond, a shimmer of sun sparkles rippled across the water, and Fern smiled. She felt the Nana would love this, she thought. She tried to catch the sparkles, first with her fishing net, then with a paper bag. Finally, with a scoop from her saucepan, but the sparkles just disappeared. Finding joy was easy, but catching it was hard. Fern walked home with heavy feet. She loved Nana and wanted to bring the joy back to her life, but her catching bag was empty. Nana was snoozing in her chair, and Fern laid her head on her arm. What's the matter? asked Nana. I wanted to catch some joy for you, but I couldn't said Fern sadly. Fern told Nana about all the things she had seen. To Fern's surprise, Nana smiled. It was the biggest, widest whoosh of a smile Fern had ever seen. You don't need a can or a box or a net to bring me joy, Nana said. You bring me all the joy in the world just by being you. The next day, Fern took Nana to the park. Whoosh. Together they found joy in the most unusual place, and this time Fern's catching bag was full to the brim with Nana's delicious butterfly cakes. And that was our story for today. I invite you to bless our children and leaders off to their groups with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of worship. Most of you know um, the focus for our community collection this month is for UNICEF and for the children of Ukraine. 
These notes were written by Joyce Schneider, who heads up our group that coordinates our congregation in giving each month. As we watch the nightly news and search for answers to our own questions about what can we do to help Ukraine, we often feel helpless. While there are many groups helping on the ground to meet the ongoing, varied, and always increasing needs in Ukraine, our team decided to send our UU WASA support this month to UNICEF. UNICEF and its partners are on the ground in Ukraine providing support to children and to families who are in desperate need of safety, stability, and protection. It's focused on meeting the most critical urgent needs for safety, health care, safe water and nutrition, while also safeguarding children's rights and long-term well-being. UNICEF is also working in the bordering countries to help them give aid, provide services and support to the over 7.5 million children that have been forced to flee. We do have more information on our website, and we know that you will give generously. Thank you in advance. The mission and the ministry of UUWASA is made possible by your generous support, all of our friends, all of our members. Right now, we're not passing a plate. You may place an offering in the basket at the rear of our church in the sanctuary. You can also give on our website. Thank you very much for your support of our church and our local congregation. I'd like to invite you now into a spirit of prayer and meditation. Prayer takes your whole body. And so start with your feet. You can put them flat and firm on the ground. Then move up to the top of your head. I invite you to close your eyes, if you're willing. Become aware of the air and the heat on the tip of your skull. As you move down your face, relax your jaw, your tongue, your shoulders. And take a breath deep into your stomach and slowly out.
And let us pray. Healing hope of love. We know that you have given us power to heal and to forgive. There are so many places in our world that cry out for healing. The violence in distant lands where ancient hostility clings to burdened hearts like barnacles. The pain and loneliness of illness. The fear of age and loss of capability. The trauma of communities torn apart by fear and drugs and hatred. And this morning in particular, we hold close to our hearts the people and the families impacted by the tragedy in Buffalo. As well, the people caught up in and fleeing the war in Ukraine. We pray for peaceful resolutions. We know you stand ready to feed your faithful people that there exists among us and within us a holy healing spirit. We claim that promise for our time and bring to mind and speech all those whose lives are heavy with fear and pain. Hear now our prayer for those in pain and need. Let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows that hang heavy on our hearts and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn, which is on the blue insert when we are singing. Oh, 
I've selected two readings. The first one I'm going to share with you is actually not in the order as it's listed in the order of worship. I'm going to read from Walker Percy's wonderful book, a very quotable book entitled Lost in the Cosmos, The Last Self-Help Book. This is what Walker wrote. He says, the the peculiar predicament of the present-day self surely came to pass as a consequence of the disappointment of the high expectations of the self as it entered the age of science and technology. Dazzled by the overwhelming credentials of science, the beauty and elegance of the scientific method, the triumph of modern medicine over physical ailments, and the technological transformation of the very world itself, the self finds itself in the end disappointed by the failure of science and technique in those very sectors of life which had been its main source of ordinary satisfaction for ages. As the writer John Cheever said, the main emotion of the adult Northeastern American who has all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. Work is disappointing. In spite of all the talk about making work more creative and self-fulfilling, most people hate their jobs, and with good reason. Most work in modern technological societies is intolerably dull and repetitive. Marriage and family life are also disappointing. Even among defenders of traditional family values, such as Christians and Jews, a certain dreariness must be inferred if only from the average time of TV viewing Dreary as TV is, it is evidently not as dreary as mom talking to dad or the kids talking to either. And school is disappointing. If science is exciting and art is exhilarating, the schools and universities have achieved the not inconsiderable feat of rendering both of them very dull. As every scientist and poet knows, one discovers both vocations in spite of, not because of, school. It takes years to recover with the stupor of being taught Shakespeare in English lit and Wheatstone's bridge in physics. And politics is disappointing. Most young people turn their back on politics, not because of the lack of excitement of politics as it's practiced, but because of its shallowness, its venality, and the image-making of these are perceived through our media, one of the technology's greatest achievements. And the churches are disappointing even for most believers. If Christ brings us new life, it is all the more remarkable that the church, the bearer of this good news, should be among the most dispirited institutions of the whole age. The alternatives to the institutional churches are even more grossly disappointing, from TV evangelists with their blown-out hairdos to California cults led by prosperous gurus ignored in India but embraced in La Jolla. And social life is disappointing. The very freneticness of attempts to reestablish community and festival by partying, by groups, by club, by touristy Mardi Gras is best evidence of the loss of true community and festival and of the loneliness of self, stranded 
as it is, as an unspeakable consciousness in a world from which it perceives itself as somehow estranged, stranded even when its own body, with which it sees no clear connection. But there remains the one unquestioned benefit of science, the longer and healthier life made possible by modern medicine, the shorter work hours made possible by technology, hence what is perceived as one of the certain reward of dreary life of home and the marketplace. And that one reward is recreation. Recreation and good physical health appear to be the only ambivalent benefits of the technological revolution. Therein ends our first reading.
So our last reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning in the first verse. This is John the Revelator's uh, vision of salvation. There are lots of visions of salvation in the Bible, lots of visions of salvation in literature, upon which this, they base on this text. This is John's particular vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, quote, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. There and ends our reading. So let's begin with a question. When do you all think the first dating site was created? Waiting, waiting. What do you think? Throw out a date. Anybody? 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 First dating site, going once, going twice? Okay, well, the first internet dating site dates back to 1959. So two students at Stanford University, well, they were students then, Jim Harvey and Phil Filer, they conducted a class project for the Happy Families Planning Services. And what they did is they used a punch card questionnaire and an IBM 650 computer, the size of this whole sanctuary, basically. And what Harvey and Filer did is they matched 49 men and 49 women. And as we all know well, since then, people have done what? They've moved whole segments of their lives online. We bank online, we shop online, social media, news, entertainment, and yes, we still find dates online. I thought about asking people to raise their hand if you've ever dated someone online, but I thought that'd be too revealing. Anyways, so sites like Match, sites like eHarmony, and there even exist these niche dating sites like SoulGeek for nerds. There's also Farmers Only for people who like dirt. There is Sea Captains for those seafaring singles. And there is also Trek Passions for all those singles who need a little bit of Star Trek in their love life. So one of the upsides of big tech is that after decades of online data storage, there exist enormous, just enormous amounts of data and information that can be used for the benefits of research. And of course, this isn't ideal for people who care about online privacy like me, and I expect like you, and this is a really big deal, especially for people who care to keep their love lives and their sex lives secret, but here we are in 2022. I think it's fair to say that most people, most people, regard the decision of whom to marry 
as an important decision, if not the most important one. After all, who you marry or commit to will fundamentally alter your life. I speak from experience. This is why in the Book of Common Prayer, the wedding service begins that by acknowledging that marriage is a union of two hearts, two bodies, and two minds. And the traditional words for the declaration of consent, if you even knew that it was called that, it includes a question with so much risk, I think it needs a crash helmet when people say it. Will you love this person? Will you comfort them, honor and keep them? In sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful as long as you both shall live. Now we all know relationships are as old as humankind. And much of human history by this point has been subjected to scientific inquiry. Be that as it may, what I find interesting is that people rarely turn to science for help with the decision of who to marry. How many of you made an appointment with a scientist before you got married? Zero of you did that. Okay, I was right. So relationship science, as it turns out, is actually quite difficult and expensive, and most data comes from these tiny little samples that often yield conflicting results. In 2007, the distinguished scholar of psychology, a man by the name of Harry Rice, he concluded that doing relationship science was basically like trying to figure out the mind of an adolescent. He went on to say that doing this kind of research is is sprawling, I'm quoting him, it's sprawling, it's unruly, and perhaps more mysterious than we might wish. And so hard as that research is, just a few years ago, a brilliant, absolutely brilliant young scientist by the name of Samantha Joel, she set out once and for all, she said, I'm going to crack this code. And so rather than do what scientists have done throughout the ages, what she did is she collected the data from all those small old studies and she merged it with the data from all of today's dating sites. So Joel's plan worked so well that what she ended up having to do was recruiting 85 more scientists to help her investigate a data set that included detailed information on 11,196 couples. That's a lot of people. So this data included things like people's age, people's income, and race. It included their physical appearance. How attractive did other people rate this particular partner? It included people's taste in how they come together. It included their interest and hobbies, their mental and physical health, values and politics, and much, much much more. And so Joel and her team, just a little while ago, they finally published this massive study, and here are what most people are looking for when they go on dating sites. So if these people are looking for a man, what do you think they want? Someone tall. They also desired someone of a particular race. Though when people were asked about this, they totally lied and they said they have no preference about it. They also wanted someone rich, but nobody would admit this either. 
They wanted someone in enforcement professions. If you don't know what an enforcement profession is, that's something like being a lawyer or a firefighter. They wanted someone with a sexy name. I don't know what a sexy name is, but that's really what they wanted. And here's the weird thing. They wanted someone basically just like they are. It turns out that of these 11,000 whatever whatever couples, 11% of those couples were more likely to match with someone who even went so far as to share their same initials. Anyways, I'm digressing. I could go on about this forever. But so... As strong as our desires may be, Joel's research shows that there is no set of traits that will guarantee or prevent romantic happiness. Furthermore, her research shows that there will never exist an algorithm going all the way back to that first one in 1959 that can predict whether two people will end up happy even though you can go on FarmersOnly.com and TrekPassions.com, and they will insist otherwise. Just for the record, I have nothing wrong with people who use dating sites. I love farms. I love dirt. I love Star Trek, so don't come at me. So further, according to Joel and her team, all the things people list as being important, things like height, things like race and ethnicity, things like occupation, sexual taste, physical attractiveness, How many of those desires that people had do you think actually contributed to people having a happy relationship? None of them. Not a one. They ended up being totally irrelevant for people who go on to have a happy relationship. And so one of the researchers on this team concluded, and I'm going to quote him here, he says, in the dating market, people compete ferociously for mates with qualities that do not increase one's chances of romantic happiness, end quote. So the conflict between what we want and what is good for us is nothing new. I could quote St. Paul at every single one of you right now, but I won't because thanks to the internet, I now have hard data that proves how inadequate people are at making important life decisions. Now, of course, Emily Dickinson and Selena Gomez are absolutely right when they say the heart wants what it wants. Desire is absolutely powerful. But desire alone, it turns out, is not enough. And we also know that this new study will do absolutely nothing from stopping us from putting so much stock in our desires. And so this research came out at the same time I caught this presentation online on this French thinker by the name of René Girard. Specifically, he has this concept called mimetic theory. And so I'm no expert on this. All I did is watch a presentation. So I'm trusting that what the presenter said, she actually knew what she was talking about, and I trust that she did. And here's what I got from it. What Girard's theory says is that our wants and our desires are actually not even that unique, like at all. His research actually showed that our desires often never bubble up from inside our brains or our hearts independently, because human desire is what? It's imitative, and it's copied. We learn what we want by seeing what others want. If you doubt this, I'm going to give you a few things if you doubt Girard's premise. So if you doubt this, Just ask yourselves why companies in the year 2020 spent more than $139 billion on advertising. If you still doubt this, 
Another analogy I heard from someone else who attended this conference, she put it like this. Just put 20 toys in a room with three toddlers and count how long it takes before they're all fighting over the exact same toy. And adults, we really aren't that much different. Just look at a group of friends at a bar. Go down to Whitewater one evening and look at a group of friends and what will you note? You'll note how similarly they often seem to dress. There's actually scientific data about that too. Or you can look how the news is bad in the same ways all over the world. Israelis and Palestinians terrorize each other just like people in Milwaukee terrorize each other. People in Wausau terrorize each other using the same tactics as people in Winnipeg. And even as we know this, even as we know that this is helpful, it still doesn't get at the why. Why do we sheepishly follow the same trends as everyone else? Why do we get outraged on Twitter at the same time over the same things? Why do we follow fads? Why do we resort to violence? Why do we think that being QB1 or prom queen or an athlete or a lawyer or a minister, all those things that can be taken away from us in an instant by accident or illness are the most important parts of our identity? Of course, nobody likes to think they're sheep. I certainly don't like to think that. But I'd also be lying if I didn't admit that Google's gremlins have actually weaseled me into buying a certain brand of luggage more than once. Google's gremlins have also weaseled me into buying a certain fitness tracking device that now occupies the very, very back of my sock drawer. Google's gremlins have also known what particular slant of political news will cause me to waste an hour of my precious time arguing with people on the New York Times comments section. I don't advise this. Our ancestors in this church would say that all these tendencies that we are discussing, all these tendencies that were researched, are the result of original sin. They'd flip open that big old church Bible that's still in my office if you want to see it. They would open it to Genesis chapter 3. They would point down and they would say, read this. Now, the Kentucky farmer and poet Wendell Berry says that the concept of original sin, quote, preserves us from the pride of thinking we invented sin ourselves by our own originality. So whether or not you're down with original sin does nothing to alter the fact that our tendency to want things that won't make us happy, to kill what shouldn't be killed, to do what shouldn't be done, to not do what should be, and so on, all those tendencies are as old as humanity. And the poet of Ecclesiastes knew this well when he said, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again because there is nothing new under the sun. Kohelet, as the poet is called, wants us to think that maybe we've been like this forever. And so in our reading from Revelation this morning, John the Revelator gives us sort of a Lord of the Rings-like picture of what the end might look like. And so in this era of war and strife, in an era often filled with news like we woke up to this morning out of Buffalo, when I read John's words that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that mourning and thirst and pain will be no more, I can't help but pray it's more than a vision. And careful readers note that the righting of wrongs, the time when death shall be no more, to use the words of the poet John Donne, 
They come as a result of grace, which I define as a bestowal of blessings, like yesterday and today, warm, sunny days, a splendid day of life for which none of us did one thing to deserve or create. It's just a gift. This might sound odd, but I read this particular passage in Revelation in the exact same way that I read Step 2 in Alcoholics Anonymous. You might be familiar with the step. I'll read it to you if you're not. Step 2 says that we have come to be aware that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So Step 2 in Alcoholics Anonymous. Revelation 22, research about human love. What do they all share? At least in my mind, what they share is an understanding that what often makes us happiest, what matters most, it comes to us rather than from us. But humility isn't exactly in style these days. So go back in time and Rene Descartes did this sort of inward turn. So Descartes, what he did is he took philosophy down what I like to call the narcissistic rabbit hole. But nevertheless, he also revolutionized the way that we think about the self when he wrote those famous words, I think, therefore I am. So if you think about the cogito, as people call it, what he did is he situated our mind, our desires, our thoughts as the center of reality. Now, we practice a faith that says, maybe you should be cautious about thinking you're the center of the universe. But about 250 years after Descartes said that, this German theologian came along by the name of Karl Barth. And what he decided to do is he said, I'm going to amend Descartes' phrase, and this is how he rephrased it. Quote, I am thought of, therefore I am. I am thought of, therefore I am. So Karl Barth lived through World War II, and he witnessed firsthand the absolute horrors of war. And what he did is he witnessed all that and all the selfless acts of all those soldiers and all those peace activists. And he said, there is no way that the center of the universe is me. The center of the universe is consideration. It's selflessness and love. The center, Barth believed, isn't me, it's us. So there's this writer and cartoonist I like named Tim Kreider. And he once said in an essay that human beings are essentially, I love this phrase, human beings are essentially sociopaths for love. I'll put that another way. When human beings are confronted with our own mortality, the true substance of life tends to rise up to the surface. And only then do we start to act accordingly. And so here's a bit more from Kreider. He says, whenever I overhear someone on a cell phone talking about an illicit affair or an excruciating divorce, or I read the anguished confessions on postsecret.com or the hopeless mash notes in the missed connection ads, it feels like a glimpse into the secret history of the world. It belies the consensual pretense that the main thing going on in this life is work and me and the making of money. And I love it when passion rips open that dull nine-to-five facade and bears the writhing need underneath. And that writhing need underneath is the need that we all have to be loved. 
to need to love, and the need for companionship. But I have this sense that love is such a monumental risk that the word we use to describe it is what? Falling. We call it falling because we all know that love can go terribly, terribly wrong. You can get hurt. You can hurt someone else. You can't control what happens in love any more than you can control your feelings and your desires or other people's. Love has so many risks that it isn't any wonder that people try to find partners based on fantasy only to discover that looks, professions, and being rich will not guarantee even one teaspoon of love. Love has so many risks that I'm not surprised when I learn that people abandon it altogether as an answer whenever they look around and see all the world's ills. And perhaps this is even why people are leaving the religions of love in droves these days, because they see too many broken hearts in the world to justify all of love's risks. But I want to close with a theological point. So 250 years ago, when the universalist gospel of our ancestors here in this church had spread like wildfire across this country, and its success was due to a single doctrine that went like this. I'm going to quote Universalism's original doctrine. It says, God is love. God loves all God's children, and all children are God's. Which means that everyone, when the last trumpet sounds, will be saved. For a time, the Universalist Church was the fastest growing church in America. But then something happened. Mainline church denominations, they decided to strike hell from their liturgical and their theological menus. And finally, a whole generation of backsliders, they returned to the churches. In my opinion, if you want to know why the Universalists lost, it's because Universalism won. But we might have lost the numbers game, but we never stopped believing that in the face of the world's fear, we are called to love. Love your enemy, your neighbor as yourself. And even though as stinctual as it is to fear, to fight and run, we must remember that fear will never hold you whenever you're unhappy. Fear will never hold you when you're sick. Fear will never deliver food and water into war zones. Fear will never forgive you and love you for who you are. Only love does that. Only love. Amen. I invite you to rise now in spirit or body to join me in singing hymn number 1018 in the Teal Book, Come and Go With Me. Come and go with me to that land. Come 
Come and go with me to that land. Come and go with me to that land where I'm bound. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be a freedom in that land where I'm bound. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be freedom in that land. There'll be freedom in that land where I'm bound. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land where I'm bound. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land. There'll be justice in that land where I'm bound. There'll be a singing in that land. There'll be a singing in that land. There'll be singing in that land where I'm bound. There'll be a singing in that land. There'll be singing in that land. There'll be singing in that land where I'm morning with someone, I invite you to take their hand. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. I invite you to have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. I'll see you in a moment.